Our scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 4, verses 31 to 42. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Thanks, Matt. Good morning. If one of you were to ask me what would be a good use of my Saturday night, you could ask me that right now if you want, because I'm going to answer that. Uh, every time we sing that song, I'm reminded of that. I, I want to encourage all of us, Saturday evenings, make it your habit to gather as a family or among friends who love the Lord, and go to gracewyoming.com, click on This Week, You'll see the text that I'm going to preach on the next day. Read and and pray over that together. Maybe if you're a parent, help your kids to, hey, listen for this. Did you notice this? See what Pastor Dave says about that. And then below that is the order of um, service. Pray through that. Pray for the person reading scripture and giving the benediction. Pray for Matt or whoever the worship leader is. Um, Familiarize yourself with the songs. If you're not already there... If you're not already familiar with them, Matt kindly gives us a YouTube link under each song. Click on that and get familiar with it so you can sing it with greater earnest on Sunday. And then I think it would be a great use of your time to then pray the the words of the song we just sang, Speak, O Lord. And the thing I like about it the most is that it's corporate. Don't just pray it for yourself and your immediate family, but pray it over all of us, asking God to help us certainly understand his word, but mostly be transformed by it. So I'm glad you asked. That's how I think you should spend your Saturday night. No one asked me that, but all right. You might remember that John chapter four, uh, we're making our way through John's gospel. Uh, We're near the end of chapter four now, and you might remember that uh, that John four begins by explaining that Jesus and his disciples, for reasons you can read about, were leaving, they were heading from Judea, that is Jewish land in the south. They were leaving Judea and going to Galilee, which is Jewish land in the north. And they were doing that, though, and here's the key, by way of Samaria, the land of the enemies of the Jews. So Judea in the south, Uh, uh, Galilee in the north, that's where down here, they're going here, and in the middle is Samaria, and it's the land of their bitter enemies. Along the way in Samaria, they came 
to Jacob's well, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had dug a well and lived in this area many years previous, and his well was still there, and as I understand it, it's still there today. You can go see it. Tired from the journey, understandably. They were walking. It was warm out. They'd gone a decent ways already. Tired from the journey, but more importantly, in order to keep a divine appointment. Again, all this is the beginning of John 4. Jesus sat down and rested while the rest of his disciples, or while his disciples, went into the nearby city to buy food. That's chapter 4, verse 8. While he was resting, while Jesus was sitting there thirsty with nothing to draw water from and hungry and nothing yet to eat, his disciples went to get it. While he was sitting there resting, a woman from Samaria, nearby town, came to that well to draw water. This was Jesus' divine appointment. He offered her living water, salvation. Described the superiority of new covenant worship, which she couldn't possibly have understood yet. And in the process, revealed himself to her as the Christ, both implicitly and then finally explicitly. Well, as it would have it, just then, and John means this definitely, if you look at that, this, this phrase, just then, it's clearly meant to indicate divine providence is at work. This isn't an accident. Jesus isn't surprised. This is why he was here. But just then, the text tells us, the disciples came back with the food they'd purchased as the woman was leaving to go back into her town to her people and tell them about the amazing encounter she had just had with this man named Jesus. Well, in between when the woman left, so she left, went back went back into her town, in between that and when the townspeople, we even saw at the end of last week, the townspeople had started to come back out to Jesus to see him for themselves. Well, in between those, Jesus and the disciples had a moment alone. All right? That's where we pick up in verse 31. We've covered all that. That brings us to verse 31. And in our text for this morning, John recounts a bit more of the story of Jesus and his disciples' time in Samaria. There's two scenes The first involves Jesus and his disciples interacting in a, I think it's a pretty funny way, about different kinds of food. The setting is still Jacob's well. And the main point, I love this. I really hope you get this the way I think we're meant to get this. So I'm going to say it, and I'm going to say it several times. But here's the first one. There is supernatural nourishment in Christian obedience. Okay, that's that's a big deal. That's the main point of the first scene. The second scene involves Jesus and several Samaritans who had heard about him from the woman at the well who was amazed by Jesus. The scene takes place at first with a few of them near Jacob's well, and then it just sort of crossfades back into Sychar, the town that they were from. The main point of this scene, which is another awesome, awesome reality, seen for the first time explicitly in the ministry of Jesus, is that Jesus is the Savior of the whole world, not just the Jews. Combined, we see the big idea of this passage. So smash those two things together. Followers of Jesus must share the gospel to the ends of the earth, to people of every tribe and tongue and nation. And as we do, we will be filled with power to do it again and again. So let's pray. Let's pray that God would use this text to fill us with conviction, especially evangelistic conviction to share the gospel with those who do not have it. And then fill us with confidence, though, in the knowledge that as we do, 
He gives us power to do that to the ends of the earth and has a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. So let's let's pray. God, thank you for this text. I, there's a way in which you have chosen to uniquely stir my heart to this passage this week. And I pray that through my preaching, whether it's good or bad, somehow you would grant that to this people. God, fill us with a sense of awe and wonder and an eagerness to test it, this idea that there is supernatural nourishment through obedience. God, help us to, help us to grasp that. Help us to be amazed by that. And, and probably most importantly, help us to then live in light of it, to really live differently as we come to believe that. And then also, God, fill us with the sense of awe and wonder and, and conviction. And there's just so much that goes along with the, the twin ideas that you have people right now all over the earth who will respond in faith when they hear your gospel and that salvation belongs to all who will receive it. God, get, get, get us, get, get our heads and our hearts and our lives firmly around all of that, I pray. As always, though, we pray as your people that not our will but yours be done. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we aren't told precisely how long it was between when the, women, the woman left to tell the people in her town about Jesus and Presumably, she didn't just walk in and say, hey, there's this guy. And, and then pre- presumably, there was an amount of time where she told the story and even maybe did some convincing. But we're not told exactly how long it was between when she left, told the people, and then when they returned. But since the town was probably uh, probably even less than half of a mile away, de- decent walk at that time of day, but not that far, it probably didn't take very long. In the brief moments when they were alone, Jesus and his disciples had an interesting conversation. Kids, I think you can appreciate this. You're able to laugh at this, probably even better than us adults. It's just a funny encounter. So remember, part of the reason Jesus stopped at the well was because he was wearied, the text tells us explicitly. He was tired from his journey, way back in chapter 4, verse 6. And the reason the disciples weren't there all along during Jesus' initial encounter with the woman at the well was because they'd gone off to buy food. They were, they were all hungry. In other words, even before Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, he was hungry and thirsty. Understandably, therefore, the disciples, when they returned with food sometime later, encouraged, encouraged Jesus, even urged him as sort of the, the flavor of the text, They encouraged Jesus to eat, urged him to eat. Never one to miss a teaching opportunity, however. Jesus replied in a way that simultaneously highlighted his mission and confused his disciples. But He said to them, Jesus, eat. It's been a long time. You're hungry. You're you're thirsty. We got some. Eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. All right, I don't want to read too much into this, and I don't want to distract with humor when Jesus clearly wasn't making a joke, but it's hard, it's hard not to laugh. You, you just, you got to picture this. Put yourself in the place of the disciples. Certainly Jesus was tired and thirsty from his journey, and maybe the disciples at this point were even more. 
while he rested at the well, they were the ones that walked the extra mile or so into town and found the place where food could be purchased and purchased it and came back. Let's picture this scene. After all that, they finally get back to Jesus, probably somewhat proud of themselves. We did it. You know, we were faithful. We served you. And he tells them, hey, I already got food. Looking around to each other, the text says, I don't know what to do with this. Did you already give some? I didn't. Did you? Who did? Did someone, did someone beat us to this? Jesus, are you, are you playing with us? Did you turn lint into bread like you turned water into wine just a little while ago? What's going on here? We haven't come all that far since then, you and I. I mean, we're, we're often too dense and slow to understand. Even though we have the whole Bible, they just had the Old Testament at that time. We have the Holy Spirit in us. They just had the Holy Spirit who would come upon them. We're still prone to boneheaded readings of the Bible and missing the things that are right in front of us that God has given to us. And so before we get to Jesus' explanation, let, let's pause here for a minute and go the way of the disciples. Let's, let's go the way of humility. Let's be a people who read God's word in, in prayer, on our knees and with help. Let's be a people who are slow to speak and quick to listen and be a people who are not wise in our own eyes. Let us be a people eager to carve out wide swaths of grace for one another as we wrestle through God's will for our lives and his word. If, if you have the sermon outline on the back is a, is a question I'd love for all of you to press into at some point this week, hopefully in your DG, but the question is something along the lines of, do you ever feel like if you were back with if you were following Jesus as one of the disciples, it would be easier than today. You know, life can be hard to know what Jesus wants, and if you were back then, if you could just see Jesus and walk with him and hear him talk rather than just read the Bible, it'd be easier. Do you ever think that, or if you're honest, do you ever look at the way the disciples reacted to Jesus and imagine yourself being a little smarter, a little quicker on the uptake? passages like this that at least tempt us to think this. Well, graciously, Jesus did not leave them in the dark for long. Essentially, he said, no, no, you misunderstand. Not, not that kind of food. I have a better, far more satisfying kind of food, the kind that I never have to go without and always satisfies. It's a special kind, a kind from my Father. Well, literally, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. I mentioned this before, I'm going to mention it again, and then again, and then again. There's a principle here with so much power and glory that it's poss- almost impossible to overstate. I'm going to say it simply once again, unpack it, and then give a brief example. The principle is this, God graciously gives supernatural nourishment through obedience to his commandments. God graciously gives supernatural nourishment through obedience to his commandments. Let's, let's look at the key, print, or the, the key clauses in there. God graciously gives. So the idea is to imagine yourself doing what God has commanded you to do. You read the Bible, you see his commands. If your hope is in Jesus, if you're trusting in Jesus, the essence of that is his commands or your marching orders. In faith, you know that to obey is greater than every alternative, but it's hard sometimes. So where, where do you get the strength to do that? Well, the first clause here, uh, or the first idea in this clause is 
God graciously gives. Jesus makes this plain. The nourishment of obedience is a gift of God, a gift from the Father. It is not deserved. You don't deserve it by being a Christian long enough or reading your Bible enough or coming to church enough. It's not earned, and it's not simply the result of some law of nature. It is entirely an act of divine grace. So God graciously gives supernatural nourishment through obedience to his commands. And the first key is to see that it's a gracious gift. Second, it's supernatural. The nourishment of obedience is supernatural. This is the one that gets me. This is the one I I hope God gets you with as well. I can't tell you how many times as a Christian, particularly as a pastor in ministry, I've been, I felt at the end of myself as though I had nothing more to give. And so I kind of power down for the day. I've imagined that there was no way I could talk to one more person or pray one more prayer or read one more verse. I felt in my bones that my power was spent, so I'd veg out or go to sleep. The key to understanding this clause is in recognizing that I was right. Usually, probably, sometimes it's just laziness, but I was right in a certain sense. I truly might not have anything, have had anything more to give. My strength probably or often had been spent. My only rational choice was to do as I did, stop. Anything else just wouldn't have made at that point earthly sense. But again, Jesus is not talking here about earthly sense. He wasn't talking about rational choices. He wasn't talking to functional atheists. He wasn't talking about human strength. Jesus spoke of supernatural nourishment. Now, Grace, don't misunderstand me. Don't mishear me. We are finite creatures. God made us finite. This isn't to suggest we have no limits, but it is to suggest that God promises power in obedience that goes beyond our limits. That's a big deal. It's going to keep unfolding. Third, by supernatural nourishment, I mean, as Jesus meant, spiritual food, divine strength, heavenly sustenance. The nourishment of obedience gives true power and energy that satisfies beyond what any earthly drink or food can do. Have you ever been on a several day or even a several week long backcountry backpacking trip? If so, you know the unique hunger that produces. There's not much quite like the joy, and there's little that regenerates quite like a big meal that you have right after that, right after you come back in from the backcountry. You feel as if you are at the end of yourself and sit down to a spread of food you haven't had in however long you've been out there, feels like nothing else. The supernatural nourishment that God gives through obedience is like that, but much, much more. It goes beyond the belly and fills the soul. Two more. The fourth clause contains an important key. Jesus said that his food was... All right, kids, I know a number of you are getting a classical education, and I'm thankful for that. The rest of you probably don't even know what that means, and that's okay too. But at some point, I hope all of you, and parents, you can be an instrument in this, learn how to diagram a sentence. So now all of a sudden, you're not going to listen to it anymore. Lala. Okay, and, and I can tell you later why I think you should do that, but, but here is one of the reasons. Here we find another remarkable, that there's remarkable power 
and prepositions. Okay, here's the key. Jesus said that his food was through, preposition is through, through obedience, not for obedience. It's a big deal. I'll tell you why. If you could diagram a sentence, you would see the need to pull out these prepositions and find how they're linking the clauses in the sentence. But Jesus said his food was through obedience, not for obedience. This means that contrary to what we often want, we don't get this particular brand of supernatural nourishment first so that we can obey. It means rather that we obey and from or through that obedience comes the supernatural nourishment. It feels like we're at the end of ourselves, and often we are. It seems like we can't obey, and on our own we often can't. But things aren't always the way they seem or feel in Jesus. The point here is that God works differently. When an opportunity to obey God presents itself, and in this particular story especially, or in particular, when an unbeliever is open to hearing the gospel in your life, for instance, but it seems like you're all out of gas, What we find here is that we ought to obey anyway. And God, through that, will give us strength that could not come from anywhere but God. Like the Israelites who wanted to store up manna for many days rather than trust God to provide it just as they needed it each morning, so too we often want to store up divine strength. Give me enough mercy to last a week. I got a tough week coming up. Give me a bunch so that I know I've got a sufficient pool of mercy to draw from as I go through these hard things. You do that. I do that. It's it's hard not to. But this type of supernatural nourishment Jesus is describing here, like the manna in the wilderness, cannot be stored. It comes as a result of trusting in God, not in order that we might trust in God. Certainly God does offer other kinds of grace that do come first, but this is not that. Again, it is through. This particular type of grace is through obedience rather than for it. All right, lastly, fifth, God graciously gives supernatural nourishment through obedience to his commandments. He doesn't give it through whatever we might feel like doing and then slapping his name on it. He doesn't give it through obedience to man-made rules. He gives it through actual obedience to his actual commands. In this, Jesus' words find their proper place. What they are is an echo of what Moses said to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 8.3. And then Jesus would say later in his ministry as well, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It is obedience to the actual words, the commands of God that provides this kind of supernatural nourishment. So in our text for this morning, in this first scene, the specific obedience to the specific command is related to evangelism, preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of Jesus to the whole world. Along these lines, I mentioned I'd give you a specific example, and here it is. I I felt this for quite a while before I ever had the words to explain it or to describe it. There's this feeling that I would get it. It would come from doing evangelism, or at least come from knowing that I should do evangelism when I was not out to do evangelism, meaning I hadn't set out to do that. I wasn't in my head. I'd be in Menards or the grocery store getting my hair cut or sitting on an airplane or something like that. Often be focused on a particular task, buying a two by four or getting my head cleared for whatever be focused on a task, and, and at the same time, often, if 
if I do shopping, it's at the end of the day after a, a longer day of ministry. And so somehow, though, in that, an opportunity would pre- present itself to share the gospel with someone in the aisle or next to me on the plane or whatever. And all I could think of was, I'm too tired. <laughs> I'm just so spent. Evangelistic conversations, if you've ever had them, you, you know that it can often be hard and draining and seem fruitless as they're happening. Most people just aren't interested in the gospel, much less considering their entire lives in light of it. So consequently, often sinfully, I'd let opportunities pass, believing I just I don't have the strength to carry that weight right now. Occasionally, however, and I think more often lately than in the past, I'll say a quick prayer and feel at the end of myself and do my best because of this passage. And here's where it all comes to a head. I'm here to tell you, I'm not, it doesn't, it's not this way for me with every act of obedience, but for whatever reason, in God's kindness, it is a hundred percent of the time when I actually share the gospel with someone. A hundred percent of the time. I leave it feeling like I just had a full meal and had a good nap. I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. I'm filled with a sense of the rightness of that and joy and thankfulness that just doesn't make sense. Where I was spent, now I feel alive. What I thought I was unable to do at or at best, what would sap out the last drops of strength that I didn't even know I had, actually, truly left me feeling, leaves me feeling a deep, deep refreshment that just moments ago seemed elusive or like the only possible way to get it was through an app. That is God's gift of supernatural nourishment. Frustratingly, I often forget it in between obediences, but when it comes to evangelism in particular, it always comes on the other side, such that I've learned to pray, God, help me to remember how I feel after evangelism, before evangelism, so that I'll evangelize. Grace, God graciously gives supernatural nourishment through obedience to his commands. Well, with that principle in mind, Jesus went on to explain a bit more about his, how his followers were to use that supernatural nourishment. All right, now I'm alive. Now what do I do? I was dead, tired, and weary, and now I obeyed, and through it received supernatural nourishment. What do I do with this newfound energy? Get the video games out, kids. We're going to stay up late. That's not what he said. It's not what you should do. But rather, uh, he gave them supernatural nourishment through evangelism for more evangelism. Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Grace, I think you know this. Your home, your neighborhood, and the entire world contain people who do not yet know the saving grace of God, who have not yet been reconciled to God by grace through faith in Jesus. But we, So we know that, but we must fight to believe. In light of this passage, in light of what Jesus says here, along with the testimony of the rest of the Bible, that among those unbelievers in our homes and in our neighborhoods and to the ends of the earth are many who will receive the gospel immediately when we share it with them. It's not up to us to decide who they are. It's our job to share indiscriminately and trust that these people will receive it in faith when they hear it. In fact, to be as clear as possible on this point, Jesus explained that although there's usually a significant gap, he he uses this farming illustration, although there's usually a significant gap between when you put a seed in the ground and when you're able to harvest its fruit or harvest it, 
That doesn't have to be the case when we plant spiritually. They were about to reap a harvest immediately, one that they hadn't even been a part of sowing, the disciples. Again, the main point for us to see here is that we must share the gospel because God has people throughout the entire world who are ready to receive it in faith. And then as we do, God will give us supernatural nourishment that we'll do it, be able to do it over and over again. Well, as the Samaritans approached now and the first scene came to a, comes to a close, Jesus gave his disciples one more principle. You have to imagine maybe you can even see this group coming in from the distance. Namely, that God means us to do this together as a fellowship of saints. And that when we do, there's even more supernatural nourishment available to us. In other words, we each individually need to share the gospel with people who are not trusting in Jesus. But the best way to do that is together as a church, among a people and as a people. And when we do that, there's more supernatural nourishment, grace available for us still. God does not mean us to evangelize the world on our own. All of God's people, all of you, all of you, Grace, every one of you, from the youngest whose hope is in Jesus to the oldest, to those of you who probably could run around the church 3,000 times and not get tired, to those of you probably get halfway around and then need a, need a break, and everything in between. All of us have different gifts given by God through the Spirit, skills, experiences, knowledge that are God has chosen to use to bring the gospel to the world that all might hear and believe. And when we share in that work, when we realize that, when we function as a body, as a people, as a family, and not just as a collection of individuals, we receive the added nourishment, Jesus tells us, in the end of shared joy. Just listen to this. Verse 36, Already the one who, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life is People come to faith in Jesus. It's, it's already happening. So the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. The one who initially tells somebody about the gospel and the one who later tells about them and they believe. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. And, and again, here's, here's the key. I send you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. There's a kind of joy here. That is awesome. The sower and reaper may rejoice together. All of this was already happening, Jesus told his disciples. The kingdom of God is at hand in them. They were already serving in the supernatural nourishment of God as they worked together to proclaim the message of the kingdom. And they were already sharing in the supernatural nourishment of the joy of doing so together. And not only that small band, but they carried on the witness of Abraham, Moses, And earlier we're told, John the Baptist preached among the Samaritans, all who had planted seeds of faith among the Samaritans that they were now about to reap. That's awesome. Don't forget that, Grace. At that, the first scene comes to a close. The townspeople arrive. The second scene is quicker, but there's a principle here that's no less important. So I mentioned a number of times already, even uh, earlier in the sermon, John's chief concern, this is the gospel according to John, John's chief concern was not chronology. His main point was not to tell you the exact timing and order of things. His chief concern was to convince people that Jesus was the Christ and that in him and him alone is eternal life. For that reason, his gospel emphasizes stories that show the Christness of Jesus. 
the stories he tells are the ones that he understands by the Holy Spirit's inspiration will help people see that Jesus is the Christ most clearly. And at the same time, he's fairly unconcerned with the actual timing of things. We get almost, we got a little bit earlier, we get almost no timing. So again, then, we're not sure exactly how long there was between when the Samaritan woman left and the crowd returned. The plain reading suggests it was pretty quick, but we can't be certain. Regardless, here's why John tells the story. Their arrival was important because it gave him another story in the life of Jesus to help his readers see another aspect of the love and power and wisdom and glory of Jesus. As impressed and awed as the woman was, the woman at the well with Jesus, the Samaritan woman could not keep the news to herself. He, he told her things about herself that he couldn't possibly have known if they weren't from God. He, he even told her explicitly, I'm the Christ. She couldn't contain herself. So she ran back to her village, told the people in her village, and as a result, as verse 39 says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. What was the testimony? He told me all that I ever did. That's what drove them out to Jacob's well to see Jesus for themselves. We're not, again, sure how long Jesus and the crowd from Sychar talked at the well. So they came to him at the well and they had a conversation. We don't know how long that was either. John doesn't tell us. But apparently it was long enough to convince them, hey, we we need this guy to stay with us. We need him to come back and teach us more. We see in him something that is remarkable. We hear in his words something that's different from what we've heard. We need to get him to come back with us. I, I hope at this point, if it hasn't been already, the first sermon I gave on this passage is ringing in your ears. All of this is shocking. If you, if you, if you didn't hear that, go back. There, there's more here than what we can see on the surface. This was shocking. Jesus shouldn't have been there in the first place. You remember that? He shouldn't have been there since Jews don't associate with Samaritans, since they were bitter enemies. Jesus shouldn't have spoken to this woman. He was a rabbi, a leader in Israel. They don't, they don't do that. He shouldn't have received, he shouldn't have revealed himself to her as the Christ. The Christ was for the Jews, the children of Abraham. The townspeople shouldn't have listened to her since she was such an immoral woman. And Jesus shouldn't have gone back to Sychar with them. But God isn't contained by our shouldn'ts, Grace. And so, Jesus loved his enemies, even the most sinful and vulnerable among them. He went to them, and he didn't even wait on them to come to him. He went to them. He spoke words of life, and they received it in faith, and he even allowed them to host him. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he did for two days. In this passage, and in this scene in particular, for the first explicit time, it becomes clear that Jesus was not only the Christ, and not only the Christ of the Jews, but he was and is the Christ of the whole world. Jesus' saving work would truly be for everyone, everyone, every man and woman and child from every people group on earth who would receive him in faith. Not only would the Samaritans believe in Jesus, but he would receive them as well. He was, his coming was good news for the Jew first, as he says, but also for the Gentile. The end result then is that this group believed when so many others among Abraham's children hardened their hearts. 
And more remarkable still is that their belief was accepted by God, making them spiritual descendants of Abraham, as Paul will explain later in his letters, even though they were not physical descendants. Verse 41, And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The most like, the most likely, that is the Jews, rejected Jesus. The least likely, that is the Samaritans, received him. Which is a reminder that salvation, the faith in Jesus that God requires to link us with Jesus, is a gift from God. Marvel at this grace of God flowing out of the love of God for the world, expressed primarily through the sending of his Son, such that whoever would believe in him will never perish but have eternal life. That's this story. Followers of Jesus must share the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus, that's you and me, to the very ends of the earth, to people from every tribe and tongue and nation in the gracious supernatural power that God provides when we do. Salvation came from the Jews, but it is for the whole world. Jesus is the Savior of the whole world, Grace. Trust in him. Trust in him today. Believe in his name and tell the whole world about him. Do it alongside the people of God, the people in this room, and the saints that have gone before and the saints that are yet to come, and be filled with the supernatural nourishment of obedience and shared joy.